What are you worried about? A woman looking at your wrist and liking it? What is the worry? We all agree that designs don't look feminine. All we're saying is it's a brand that people mostly associate with women, which is fine. And what I say is the people that recognize the brand are women. And so a lot of guys like it when a woman compliments or thinks positive of their watch. Some random, like, independent brand, she's not going to know what it is. So what I'm saying is if you're worried that the watch is too feminine, that might be a good thing. On this week's show, we continue the tour of Watches and Wonders as we plan a visit to Chanel, Bell & Ross, Hublot and Oris, and we ask if Shinola should get a stand for 2024. We consider a new release from IWC, and we all get to play our favourite game as we review a new King Seiko, all while getting a blessing from another King. Please be upstanding. Ladies and gentlemen, the King. Okay, it's quite enough of that. This is the news, the staggering news that double wristing now comes with a royal seal of approval because Prince William, Prince of Wales, has been filmed wearing both a Garmin on one wrist and his well-known uh, Omega Seamaster 300-meter Bond-type watch on the other wrist. So what do we think? Do we think that that's it? Double wristing, wearing two watches, Ariel, is now officially with a royal seal of approval. I have personally, without knowing that he was going to do this, been double wristing with the Garmin for the last several months. So I'm not sure it was just him. I've been doing the exact same thing. So maybe it's a bit of a trend. But I think it's very clear that the smartwatch is a cool watch and the traditional watch is a cool watch. And there's a lot of people who just can't decide which one they like more. And so wearing one on each wrist, honestly, it's not perfect, but it does kind of satisfy both needs a little bit. So do we think it's possible that he's actually seen you somewhere? Do we think he's in a blog to watch reader? We do have some famous readers. It's not It's not an entirely stupid idea that, you know. Oh, we do. I know that for sure. They don't want me talking about them. But a blog to watch is followed by a lot of famous people. Because if you haven't noticed, a lot of famous people, like the one we're talking about right now, are clearly into watches. David, do you now feel more confident, more masculine, more able to wear two watches just because a Prince of Wales is doing similar? No. Yeah. Uh, it's done nothing for me, <laughs> but I'm happy that we are not seeing any more of those abominations that we, we saw where uh, brands were trying to build these hybrid watches that were a smart watch on one side and then a mechanical watch on the other side and other things like that. Because I was just wondering, like what Aria said, that yeah these are cool products and, and cool things to wear and there's no way to have them to experience them uh in the same package basically you have to double wrist them and i'm not really a fan of those the only watch i could wear actually on my right wrist without discomfort is the apple watch on the woven uh, strap or the woven bracelet which is very very cool that has no clasp or anything like that it's this stretchy woven or weave bracelet i think they call it um so yeah i've 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 double wristed for for a, a brief period, but I'm I'm not a fan of it at all, to be honest. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. When did the Hungarians get rid of the royal family, and was it a bloodless coup, or do you still have a royal family? Oh, oh wow! <laughs> I, I I I think it started over a discussion on double wristing. That's for sure. Whether or not it, whether or not it involved watches is a different question. You're riding two horses at once? Never. <laughs> yeah, how dare you? Uh, good stuff. Okay, moving on from that, our 
theme for this week is actually from an article that Ariel has written, which we'd like to delve a bit more into. And this is about watch brands and their communication with us. Now, I actually spent uh, a few moments a couple of weeks ago unsubscribing from a number of emails that we just tootle in every day from multiple watch brands. I think I was getting three a day from Christopher Ward from various email addresses that were being forwarded to Central One. So I, I stripped it back to just one notification a day. And same with other brands. Some I just decided, nope, don't want to hear from you again. I read a blog to watch. So I can, if I want information, I can find out from there. So that was me clearly showing a preference, not for direct communication, but for indirect communication by reading the details on a website. Ariel, what do you hope to find out from this survey? Thank you. You know, what I wanted to learn from this article and the the one is, the name of the article is Survey, How Do You Want to Hear from Watch Brands? What I was trying to do is see if other watch enthusiasts kind of felt the same way I did. I'm on, like you said, a lot of um, email lists. Don't remember subscribing to most of them. Yeah, I have that <laughs> feeling as well. And uh, we've also talked a lot about, you know, brands that release too many watches and so I thought, you know what, let's ask the community. You know, we're pundits, we're talking heads, we feel one way. Oftentimes other people feel the same way, but not all the time. And there's a series of eight different questions here that ask various things. I won't go into all of them because I want you to read the article and I also want you to vote and participate. We'll start with one of the interesting ones is how often do you want to hear from a watch brand? And remember, there are certain brands that send us emails daily. And this question was specifically how often do you want to hear from them via email? My guess was that it would be, you know, not very often, either a few times a year or up to once a month. And some brands literally send stuff out every day. Again, didn't subscribe. So what do you think? Well, like nearly 43% of you said no more than once a month. <laughs> I, I, once a month <laughs> is all you can handle. And again, the brands that do email uh, marketing often do it more than once a month. And then almost 40% says no more than a few times a year. So about 84% of you say, like, just just relax it. I want to hear from you once in a while. 3% said that they're happy to hear as often as every day, and only 15% said up to once a week. So less than 20%, 17% of the respondents are happy to hear regularly. That tells me that brands need to cool it because you can actually sour uh, the communication. You can just, you know... You, you can you can make it so that it, the, the message is unwelcome and people aren't even listening. And then another question that I thought was interesting was related to sort of how often new watches come out. My instinct tells me that consumers like to plan for purchases like watches. It's a big ticket purchase. It doesn't happen spontaneously. And the people that spend relatively spontaneously in watches who have just huge disposable incomes are relatively rare and they don't tend to be into watches for long periods of time. Meaning maybe they'll have a period of purchasing. They're like, oh, I'm really into watches. I'm going to get all these watches. But they sort of get into the hobby as quickly as they get out of it. People that buy watches consistently over you know, years, if not decades, tend to time their purchases out. They tend to plan a little bit more. And that's you know what I wanted to hear people about. So first of all, how many people feel overwhelmed by the number of new watch releases that come out? And again, this is because Seiko, we talked about, was doing literally more than one a day. <laughs> so that was like too many. <laughs> and again, let's say 23% nearly 
said usually true. So almost a quarter of people said I am most of the time overwhelmed by how many new watch releases. And the next one was sometimes true. 30, uh, near, near, nearly 36.5% said sometimes true. So that's a big chunk of people. Big chunk of people say that there's too many new watch releases coming out. Just under 30% says rarely true. Under 11% say that they want to hear about as many new watches as possible. Just interesting, interesting numbers there. I think the other thing that I was interested about is how often do you want brands to release new products? Slightly different questions, the last one I'll talk about here, but how often do you want to hear about new watches? Is it, is it, is it all the time? Is it um, once a year? You know, sometimes they might release five watches at once. I'm of the belief that people want to hear about it less often because they want to plan for purchases. And the more often they hear about a new product, it throws off their planning. They're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. Maybe I want this one. So then I have to reset everything. I was planning in this other watch over here, but this new one came in and I don't know what I want to do. And so what it does is it throws a wrench in, in purchasing decisions because people have a problem making decisions, which is normal. So this is interesting. Less than 5% said, I want the brands I like to release new watches as often as possible. I suspected it would be low, but that was pretty low, less than 5%. Mm. Just over 15% says as often as monthly. And this is interesting. Just under 22% said up to once a year. Nearly 58% said no more than a few times per year. So there's, there's a huge interest right now in less, less releases. Let me, let me plan. Let me you know, think about. Let me chew a little bit on, these, on the, all these new watches. And I think that that's very interesting for brands that right now are using a model to release watches all the time. We'll come on to Watches and Wonders shortly because I think these big shows that are now making a return after COVID is what is driving some of these numbers. People are suddenly realizing that during COVID when there was no shows, the watch brands, all they could do was pump the stuff out when it was ready. There was no point in saving releases up for a specific date because there was no big event to promote them at. And now we're in this kind of hybrid of watch brands deciding whether they should stay with the release it when it's ready or go back to the gather them all together and do one big release. But what I particularly find interesting is how that relates to one of the other questions, which is watch brands that release watches that are not actually ready to be sold. And I think that is the thing amongst all of it. I can ignore an email. It takes like a millisecond to delete an email. But the thing that annoys me the most is a brand marketing something that I want that, you know, turns out their marketing is successful. Yeah, great. That looks like a great watch. Only for you then to go, oh, I'd have to wait nine months for it. And with the number of watches that are coming out, there's always going to be something else that piques your attention in the in-between times. Uh, if you're not careful. I, I just find it a really strange habit. At Omega in particular, I would say do this, where they release information on a watch and then it's not immediately available. Whereas we've seen in the past sort of cycle of watch releases, the likes of Tudor doing several big releases whereby they tell you on a Monday it's available, you could walk into the store on a Monday afternoon and actually get the watch, at least for 24 hours until they were all sold out of stock. And I think that's one of the interesting questions because it's not 
necessarily something that's being driven by marketing. I could absolutely see the marketing department being given the heads up three years in advance that this is what is coming. They plan it, they put it on their schedule, it becomes immovable, and then the manufacturing falls behind so that they can't actually have it available in time for when the proposed release was going to be. So this is an interesting sort of vestige about how the watch industry used to operate. And it goes back to the days where uh, a show like Basel World would be where, where orders are made. And the idea is essentially this. To make a, a production run of watches, you have to invest a huge amount of money and time. First of all, a lot of money materials, especially if there's precious materials, parts. I mean, there's just, you know, <laughs> so many parts that go into a watch, the movement, the case, just all kinds of parts. And then you have to assemble everything. And then once you have, you know, freshly made inventory, it's just sitting there. You, you, you can't, you have to move it or else it's just, it's not doing anything for you. You want to sell it right away. So for a very long time, the watch industry and the jewelry industry as well has decided that what it should do is make a prototype or a few prototypes, sample the market, that we go to retailers, get orders, and then produce enough units to satisfy the orders and a little extra. So if they got orders for a thousand watches, they might build 1,200 and they knew that a thousand of them already had places to go and were paid for, and maybe they'd make a few extra, and that's what they would do. They would never just make a thousand watches. Now, what they've done is they've actually treated the consumer like the retailer, and that's, I think, where the unfairness comes in. Retailers buy watches at a discount to then resell. They're sort of in on the marketing. Consumers are supposed to be who you're making happy. I think it is unethical for watch brands to treat the consumer like a retailer when they don't get any of the privilege of the retailer. They don't get those lower prices, right? And they're not definitely not making money from it. <laughs> so brands are sampling the market, seeing what people like, seeing if there's orders, and then deciding to do the production run or making a very small one to begin and then really seeing what to do. It forces consumers to wait. It means that the final products sometimes aren't what you expect. A lot of the times I've seen watches where they don't end up making all the prototypes. And it's like, what happened to the, the red dial? Oh, we couldn't get that color right, so we're not going to do it. It's like, wait a minute. So all the people that got excited about this because it's a beautiful color, you're just sort of like quietly being like, sorry, you know, we, we can't make you happy, but we made these other colors you don't want. And that, that actually happens a fair number of the time. And so we assume that just because there's like a CAD document, you know, that that watch is going to be produced in volume. That's not always the case. And we've seen a lot of brands tripping over themselves. LVMH, uh, unfortunately, with some of the, um, the the technology they want to use in movements, the silicon, uh, it's not their fault. They, tr they, they, got, they got technology to sort of work in the prototype phase. They got people mm. excited by it. They're like, we're going to build this now. And then they only learned after the fact that they really couldn't industrialize it. And this, again, was their mistake because they tried to do the classic model with technology that needed to be tested um, in order to to really see how industrializable it was. And so it's just sort of showing you how much reliance there, there is. It's, it's not anybody's fault. I'm not trying to say um, that LVMH did a big gaffe, but in the modern era, you see problems that would not occur if brands didn't, you know, uh, do the, mm -hmm. the necessary uh, testing and, and thorough productions and things like that. Because again, they're, they're wanting to conserve cash. And, and I, I, I guess I can understand that. But anyways, that's why they do it. Yes, the isograph and the Defy Lab are subjects I've touched on many times in the past. David, most annoying habit in watch marketing, other than terrible photographs? 
I think I just wanted to, to reference that regularity that we were talking about when it comes to releases. I think, you know, brands had to react to the fact that people are bombarded with new releases of other products way too frequently. You know, there's uh, there are new, you know, items of clothing that people uh, want or are marketed to, you know, like, hey, here's this crazy new Nike shoe or whatever else that you, you might want to go and pick up. And it's, it's broken the cycle. And, and we're used to uh, receiving so much more information and so many more impulses to buy other stuff, not watches, but other stuff. And the watch industry, even like five, let's say five or six years ago, was uh, having this one or two major events and then rolling out watches from that event throughout the year, which was, uh, as you guys said, it was, was super antiquated and just a broken system because people got understandably frustrated when they went to the boutiques. And, and they said, oh, well, you saw that cool watch uh, at the end of March. Well, good luck to you. See you in September. And by then, you know, people had forgotten. So I think we have flung to the other other extreme of it all when uh, <laughs> there's a new release from certain brands every day or every week or something like that. And it's difficult to keep track of. So again, I, I it's, it's a game to uh, keep the attention of the customers on watches and on a certain brand and hopefully alert them into a boutique and have them spend on something. But again, as Ariel said, you know, it's a, it's a big purchase. It's something that people love to contemplate. And I think the best way to do that would be to stay true to the brand's values and core aesthetic elements as opposed to uh, just mixing them up every year or every other year. And if you look at the resale value of certain brands, uh, those uh, are the ones that are suffering the most to that are suffering the most to change their core aesthetic values or don't even have one. And those who have stayed true to these and are easy to keep track of, those are the ones that people migrate to and, and consider a safe purchase, even if there are new limited editions every once in a while. Good. So go and take part in the survey. Tell us what you think. Uh, tell us if there's something we've missed, something that we should be asking. Uh, but most importantly, take part and add your voice to the the numbers that uh, Ariel will analyse. 2023 marks 25 years of Urwerk, a brand from Baumgartner and Fry with the ambition to challenge auteur lingerie with new ideas and modern technologies, making art that tells time. The UR202, known as the Hammerhead due to the shape of the case, was released in 2008 and uses a winding system that's regulated using compressed air, the first watch in the world to do this with fluid dynamics. It features the brand patented revolving satellite complication with added telescopic minute hands, a day-night indicator and a moon phase indicator. For more, search for Urwork at blogtowatch.com or follow at Urwork Geneva on Instagram. Okay, we started our tour of Watches and Wonders last week. We continue with four brands. I think you would consider these brands, well, three of them, probably slightly more off the wall for various reasons. One of them is a bit of a mainstay, but the but once you've passed Rolex and Patek, straight ahead of you is Chanel, and immediately to them is Bell and Ross as you turn the corner, and then you have Hublot and Oris. So let's start with one of the slight oddballs of the show, but a magnificent, magnificent stand, which is Chanel. Gentlemen, what is Chanel's place in watches and wonders in the world of high horology? Chanel is a very important brand in the watch industry, and they're also um, part owner of Bell & Ross, which is why they're next to each other. Mm-hmm. Chanel has sold a very large volume of the J12, the ceramic watch, which is, uh, in my opinion, fantastic. They don't focus on men's watches right now, but the ones that they have made are, are, are fantastic, uh, in my opinion. 
they are one of those companies that other brands get jealous of when they make all the women's watches, right? You always have brands like, you know where our growth area should be? Women's. And that's because <laughs> brands like Chanel, Cartier, and Rolex uh, dominate the luxury space for uh, women's watches for the most part. And you don't really hear Chanel too much in the, in the wristwatch conversation other than when it talks about dominating the sort of mainstream female demographic. In the early 2000s, it was much stronger. Chanel has pushed into very high-end watches, whether they're jewelry, tourbillons, a lot of in-house made stuff, a lot of it through a relationship with APRP. And again, Chanel has their own manufacturer to produce the ceramic for the watches. So Chanel does about as much as you'd really think a brand should do to be taken seriously. Um, as a watchmaker, they have the the Montsou collection, which is ha um, has movements made by uh, Romain Gaultier, which are um, truly gorgeous. So yes, in the West... Uh, it is very easy to sort of just put this is a, a female brand label on Chanel. And it, to a large degree, it is. Uh, but if you can be open-minded and recognize that there's sort of other facets to the brand, there's some fantastic, cool stuff there. And if you are a woman, it definitely is 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 up there in, in the popular choices for sort of a mainstream luxury watch. And do we think that Chanel will just continue this year? A little bit of prediction work here that will go there and it will be yeah great watches great stand uh but it's gonna be feel a bit awkward trying most of the stuff on because it's really not meant for six foot you know guys wandering in jeans and t-shirt or do we think actually we might see chanel you know do a bit more of a focus on the male lines because the monsieur stuff the super allegra all these kind of things fantastic fantastic looking watches obviously they own kinesi or a share of kinesi so they, they are a brand that is capable of doing pretty much anything but as you say they make a shed load of money from the high jewelry complications of the women's watches so maybe there is an element of well why would we need to go and do lots of other things that are out with our knitting out with our comfort zone we make lots of cash doing this thank you very much well that's why we love the fashion houses because that that's where some creativity actually comes from. We're not saying that they're always creative. Yes. They're definitely not. But best case scenario, the luxury fashion houses are the ones trying something different. And we go there because we hope to see something new. We hope to see something bold. Chanel, like Cartier, is based in Paris. And Cartier is one of the only brands I think we go there. We're like, oh, come out with a new case. Come out with a new line because it's going to be cool and interesting. And it might even fail. Like I remember when the Click came out, we were all kind of like excited. It was kind of weird. I think it failed, but we didn't care. Nobody cared. It was great that they tried it. Um, so I look for originality and some risk taking from the fashion house brands where I don't really expect it from the sort of like old horology brands. Well, that's for sure. Chanel, uh, over the course of the last 10 years, I've, I've seen every two, three years, maybe more like every three years, some brilliant sparks of creativity from Chanel. And, and those always got my hopes high. And then two stagnant years and then another amazing watch that I never ever hear about again <laughs> and, and i and i feel like I, I wish that chanel would break this uh, this pattern and would own some of these cool designs and and create something else uh that is more of a staple for the brand uh, i think that's missing big time and again anytime i saw some of these things and some of these creative watches they were very promising but they hardly ever followed through and most of them were eye-wateringly expensive and uh you know i would just look at one some of these two-tone or high contrast watches you know part of it is black part of it is white yeah you know part of it is uh, fitted with like jewels and stuff of course the gems and stuff is going to be expensive but still i would love to see 
something from Chanel in the 8 to 12k region, which is which is still, you know, a high amount of money to pay for a Chanel watch that is not like an established brand. But I would expect it to be well made, to be in ceramic, to be cool, to be out there a little bit. And, you know, every time when I when I have this Chanel bug, I just go online and I try and find one of those J12s with the AP movement in them. That's as creative and it's out there as they have gotten in the relatively affordable segment. I used to remember the reference number of those, but I, I don't anymore. But it's easy to find with like a 30 second Google search. H2918. Oh, you have one of those? <laughs> and there's the 2919. One was glossy, one was matte. I'm also looking. Yeah, okay. Okay. How much are those selling for these days? Uh, 12 to 15 usually. Wow. Okay. I that's, think that's, that's what it is. Now I'm going to go on and be like, I was totally confused. I think that's the reference. It's going to be like 45. <laughs> <laughs> what was that going on with that reference number? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I it's been a while that I checked one of those again because I just don't really hear from Shana. That's for Bell and Ross. I really appreciate their more high-end stuff. It's it's always beautifully made. Uh, at least those watches that I checked out hands on or heading for review. I, I would reach for something higher and within Balandros, which is crazy because, uh, of course, the resale is not going to oh, be there. Oh, I was there. right. Yeah? How much is it? Oh, uh, the the prices, I wasn't even looking at the prices. I was just checking the reference numbers. It is, in fact, the H2918 and the H2919. That's cool. So these are Chanel J12s, but with APRP movements. Yeah, it's got like the the 3000 series movement. What is that? I forget. Uh, some, yeah. It's a base AP self-winding movement, which is very cool. Which is funny because yeah. it's like an archaic movement. It's not even that good of a movement. I'd rather have the <laughs> no. Anna, but it's like, ooh, it's got <laughs> it's out of our opinion, and so it's collectible. The fashion house I associate with having moved most successfully into developing its own range of watches, which everybody just kind of fawns over as Bulgari with the Octofinissimo. Are Chanel capable of producing something that could become its own thing? And is the name of Chanel? See, I just wonder whether there's so much femininity associated with the brand name Chanel. What, what are you worried about? A woman looking at your wrist and liking it? Like, what's the, like, that's the question. No, like, what's, I, wor- what, what is the worry? Just, yeah, no, no, fair enough. It's a, it's a fair <laughs> question. I, I, I can wear pink. I can wear pink. I'm not concerned. We all, no, but we all agree that designs <laughs> don't look feminine. No one is saying that True. these Chanel men's watches look like women's watches. All no. we're saying is it's a, it's a, it's a brand that people mostly associate with one, with women which is fine. And what I say is the people that will recognize the brand are women. And so a lot of guys like it when a woman compliments or thinks positively of their watch. If it's some random, like independent brand, she's not gonna know what it is. But she knows Love Chanel. Your right? Yeah. Like she's gonna be like, oh, is that Chanel? That's cool. So what I'm saying is if you're worried that the watch is too feminine, that might be a good thing. Bell and Ross, little stand next to them. I do love Bell and Ross. I, I guess for both of these brands, I, I kind of somehow hope that there's a breakout watch that they do that just gets everybody, you know, really, you know, desperate for those brands, desperate for a particular new line of watches. Now, Hublot will be guaranteed to, at the very least, well, well one assumes it will be a colourful stand. It will be a surprise if we turn up to the Hublot stand and everything is in black and white and toned down. I suspect it will be next to probably Roger Dubuis, the craziest place in PAL Expo. Ariel, you've had quite a lot of engagement with Hublot recently. Are we expecting the craziness to continue? That's a good question. I think that we're going to see a very commercial side of Hublot. Obviously, 
what's commercial right now are bright colors and wildness, and that's what we're going to see a lot more of. We've been seeing a lot of ceramic in colors we don't normally see it in, uh, including colors like yellow and red, and, and I think there's going to be more of that, especially all the blues, the greens that we're seeing them in. So more of that, more of colored sapphire. I think there's going to be a mix between the very high end. I think that Hublot is going to have a little bit um, hard in its heritage. It started with the sort of watches from the, the early Hublot era in the 80s. We might see a little bit more of that. I'd like to see those watches and put them on, see how I feel about it. Um, I don't think we're going to see insane amounts of originality in terms of major new collections, but a, a lot more of the sort of the variations we're seeing. Maybe a few years down the line, but I think that Hublot right now is again, trying to lean into what has been working. Yeah, I mean, last year we saw the release of the Square Hublot, and this year, I think this is the first time I recall Hublot leaning into their history, if you like, with the classic Fusion re-debuting, so to speak. David, do you agree? Are we, are we going to see a bit of a harking to the past rather than pushing the boundaries? I mean, the Square Watch seems to have kind of, you know, I assume it's available, but having been released and got quite a good reaction, I felt, last time. You don't seem to have done much with it in the preceding 12 months. Yeah, I think, you know, there's only so much you can do with Hublot history. I, I, you know, it's good to justify the existence of the brand and, and you know, it speaks to those who care about these things. But um, I would go out on a limb and say that most Hublot customers don't really care about the history <laughs> of the brand. And they, they care about the fact that it's existed for some time, that it's plastered all over Formula One and other places that shows the strength and UEFA World Cup, World Cup and all the, other, uh, all the rest of it. And that just displays the strength of the brand, which is something that people look to, but not history. I, I think that, that the concept is lost on most of the customers. And I don't mean this in a bad way. It's just the simple fact of the matter is that the spirit of being Mang is, is an old one. It's, it's a great looking watch, but I can't get over the fact that it looks so much like a wannabe Richard Mille. I just, I just can't get myself over that. Even though there are some cool pieces in that collection, for sure, it's not the Hublot that I would get. Cool. So it will be interesting to see what Hublot are like. It will certainly be a busy stand, but a brand that, I mean, it was the first iteration of the new Watch and Wonders, but a brand that was new to the big show scene, at least in the scale that it was there, and did a spectacular job and probably had, for all the watch journalists, it's the most important judge. We're not really that bothered about the watches, really. We we pretend that we are. What we're really interested in is the swag and the brand that had the best swag last year and will do well to top it this year, but we'll try and almost certainly succeed, was Oris. Had a great stand last year. It was actually one of the few places you could go and record from our point of view because it was... It had little booths you could go and sit in. It wasn't just standing room only, as so many of these places are, where there's actually nowhere to sit. I think if, if I think if I was to say one thing to all these brands, could you just give us somewhere to sit down? Oris did. It was like a, it felt like just a big cafe, but it had some magnificent works of mechanical art in the place. Great people all interacting, talking to everybody, really friendly place. But what did we think of Oris's first venture into these big arenas? And what do we think their second adventure will bring? I really have no idea what Oris is going to do. <laughs> I mean, look, we, we've seen the trajectory they're taking. Uh -huh. More of the movements that, that they sort of produce, the sort of caliber 400 family, price points that have those watches around 4,000 and up. 
Uh, I think they like those higher margin pieces. A big variety of colors, a lot of fun, fun looking watches, uh, very wearable stuff. I think that consumers are a little bit concerned about the tr price trajectory. I know that Oris uh, legit legitimately feels they have a good value proposition, and they do. The problem is, is that the market's different at four thousand dollars than than it is, at, say, you know, two thousand dollars. There's different competition out there, and it's a different type of consumer that can afford that. And so, what I've yet to see is is Oris as a brand speaking as clearly to the demographic of people that want to spend $4,000 on a watch as the people that want to spend, you know, around $2,000 a watch. You know, for example, they're into certain sports and activities and things like that that, you know, could have very different appeal to even just a slightly different spending category. And so I think that Oris has a decision to make. Either it refocus a, a little bit more of its products on that sort of $2,000 level where I think it was very strong at, or if it wants to focus on that little higher upmarket amount, it figure out, does it want to change something about its branding? Does it want to change something about the value proposition? I'm not sure what that is, but maybe they think they have it right now. But I think a lot of the collectors agree that there's sort of a little bit of a personality and a messaging gap and that they really, really were able to to appeal to people looking to spend about 2000 to 4000 Again, a lot of people are being made very happy by Oris. I think they actually make a really great product. But I think you'll agree that there's a little bit of a sort of like Mis, not not miscommunication, but not enough communication to that buyer. Yeah, I mean, Oris or whatever Oris release at the show on the assumption that they're going to release something is instantly going to be compared, I would think, to whatever Tudor release at the show because they're probably going to be in and around the same price. So, especially if it's caliber 400. So that is where they need to justify being and being at this kind of show is obviously the start of that sort of process. You know, we are a proper luxury brand. You know, we're opposite Chanel next to Grand Seiko round the corner from Chopard. So, David, do you think this is where Oris have their challenge just now? Is just, you know, they're climbing the ladder. They need to commit Absolutely, I think it's a it's a difficult segment of the market because there's just cut neck competition all over, you know, everywhere. Once you once you pass three three and a half thousand dollars, you you meet tutors and and other established fan favorite brands, and it takes quite a bit of explanation. And also, you know, I think the challenge for us is to go uh, deeper into this echo chamber where where people are telling each other like, oh, tutor is so gay, tutor is so great, and we were listening to that for so many years, and you know, it's just basically like. Like I said, an echo chamber, and that's where I feel like this segment is is a strong one because so many people look to upgrade to their first serious luxury watch from the Tissots and 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 lower end Longines and and whatever else that they have had, and they are like, okay, it's time for me to buy my first serious watch, and it's going to cost well over three grand, and I will do my research because I enjoy the part of the research as well as the purchase and I want to make sure that I spend all this money that's like three or four times as much as I've ever spent on a watch wisely. And uh, to, to make that happen, it takes quite a bit of explanation from the brand, from the media, and also from uh, the peers of these prospective buyers for sure. Where do you think their focus will be? Do you think in order to achieve this step up, they need to focus on one line, like the dive side as, you know, Everybody loves a dive watch. Or do they need to kind of go, uh, we need all of our 
various ranges to rise up. I mean, Oris used to have a little bit of a focus on quite complicated watches, which they've kind of done away with. You don't really see much from that kind of sphere of Oris. It's really all dive watches, pilot watches. Do they need to focus on an individual thing or do they need to get the whole brand to rise? Well, obviously the, the brand has to come some way still, but I think the the movement is ex, ex, extremely important in this segment because everyone can put an ETA or, or a Salita or something like that into any of these watches and sell them for three or four grand. And with the Caliber 400, Oris has something strong on their hands with a, you know, five days of power reserve. And, uh, you know, it's like a larger movement, 30 millimeters wide, runs at four hertz. It's a it's a strong proposition in this segment, and I don't think that Oris could succeed with anything other than uh, than this movement inside uh, its three and four grand watches. Oris normally has a preview event each year. They didn't do it this year. There have been a bunch of years they, they've done it. They didn't do it this year. I think that they're making some strategic changes here and there. You can just sort of always sense that a little bit, uh, probably for the better. But I think that Oris is probably very cautious going into the year. I think it was a good year the last few years. They know or they believe that there's going to be, you know, it's going to be slow going in some areas. And so my guess is that we're going to see a, probably a little bit more of a restrained uh, brand this year, mainly given the economic outlook. Other brands are not necessarily going to follow suit and will be a little bit more gung-ho about it. But my instinct is that Oris is going to be a little bit more um, more efficient this year, just given uh, economic uncertainties. Okay, Doc, so that is our tour of four brands of Winner 3 or 4 next week. Okay, to follow on from talking about watch brands you want to hear from, we go into, I think, what's my favourite segment, because guess what? Seiko have a new release, and that means we get to play our favourite game. If we were a multi-million dollar podcast, we'd have got somebody to write music for us. This is our guess the price time, so I will describe the watch, gentlemen. And you will tell me what you think it costs. Okay, I haven't seen this. I don't know what this is. I mean... So this is Seiko Unveils, the Seiko Watchmaking 110th anniversary. So we've got an anniversary. King Seiko. Did you say King King Seiko? King Seiko, yeah. King Seiko, okay. SPB365 watch and a new core collection. 39 millimeter models. And the movement of the one we are looking at the price of is a 6R55A. Okay. So, David, give us a bash. New King Seiko, 39 mil. What have Seiko prices watch at? It's, is this a steel case? Is it on a steel bracelet? What is it like? This is on a bracelet. I, I think it also comes with an additional uh, free leather strap with a deployant buckle. And mm. there's nothing particularly spectacular about the materials used, from what I can tell. It is very, um, available in a couple of varieties of colors, a white, a brown, a green, and a, a blue. A bracelet and a strap? That Ooh. could go either way. That could yeah. be very ritzy with Seiko. <laughs> yeah. They charge about the same for either, so we know that one. they're not exactly premium <laughs> priced, but, huh. I, I think, you know, given the 6R55, that's a, a relatively more expensive movement, I would say $1,200. Twelve hundred dollars from David. I'm I'm gonna Ariel. go a little bit lower. I'm just gonna say a thousand dollars. Thousand dollars, okay. Drum roll. The price is eighteen hundred. Oh wow. USD. Oh jeez. So there you go. <laughs> it does have king in the name. 
The king was always supposed to be like nice, but not that nice. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what that means. Is that I'm just saying it's in the premiere name. at this point. No, uh, we, nobody knows. I'm confused. I thought King Seiko they had brought back as just King Seiko, <laughs> whereas this what is like Seiko. King, so this says is there, is there like the Prince of Presage? Oh, I, I've completely lost. That'd be lost. cool, the Prince of Presage. Someone needs to make that watch. <laughs> oh, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder who it would be because this is this is this is like go back to the old Seiko Grand Seiko days. This is Seiko King yes. Seiko on it. I thought the idea of the new King Seiko releases was was that it was just going to say King Seiko on it. I'm confused. What else does Seiko have around that price point? I feel that Presage has stuff exactly that same price point. Oh, almost certainly. I mean, it's Seiko. Does this compete some, with Presage? Isn't that kind of the same thing? <laughs> I, I, it's Seiko's favorite subject is competing with itself. I, I wonder what the message is if you're wearing a King Seiko as opposed to a Prospects. Like, is there some sort of a connotation that is a, that Seiko customers know when and they are like, well, I have a King Seiko and so there's that. Or is there <laughs> is there some sort of a message behind that? No, <laughs> uh, like bragging rights or something like that. I, I'm pretty sure there isn't one, but I'm I'm just not sure what it is. It's it's a nice watch. the The photos are horrid, mm. but it looks like I suspect the brown in real life will actually be quite nice. I just googled this 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 watch, and there's a picture on the official site that says King Seiko Band Simulator, and it has five pictures of the watches on different straps. And it's called a band simulator. It's like coming to a PlayStation near you, band simulator. That's it. I like it. We really failed the price test. We were like half off there. We like. I mean, it doesn't yeah, sound like you were much off because it's only a few hundred dollars, but yeah, yeah, it was quite significant. A thousand dollars versus. Well, remember, Seiko used to talk about how just a hundred dollar difference, especially in department store environment completely change the demographic so we like laugh about 600 800 like that's yeah. actually huge <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's fair to say it though that it's not necessarily you that's <laughs> off in the price it's probably seiko that are off in the price your price never is exactly question what the price their pricing be. practices they know exactly <laughs> what their watches cost to produce and they would never overcharge us i remember buying a grand seiko for that amount yeah. of money wow you know so it's just nuts i just don't understand it i, I can't even begin to start to explain what the strategy could be in doing these sorts of things you know what there needs to be there needs to be somebody on youtube or maybe this is like an even newer thing maybe this is a tiktok thing i don't know but that like does video reactions to seiko stuff and just is over the top very emotional like <laughs> I, it's not gonna be any of us we're not the yelling type but someone that just do some insane thing where they're reading about it and then they just have some wild reaction of confusion or anger or something like that because i feel like there's this sentiment the community has and again we, i think i love it and david loves it because we like watching a lot of japanese entertainment that sort of goes crazy on the emotions so we just yeah, imagine we, i imagined all this japanese like you know animation in my mind of people screaming or yelling like crazy yeah i'm thinking <laughs> this i think in this tiktok video needs to be for an english-speaking audience but done in really loud Japanese, over-the-top excess, like yeah, those I don't TV even want shows. to understand what they're saying. I just want to yeah, hear, yeah, exactly. the, you know, how how frustrated they are. The steam <laughs> coming out of their ears. Yep, that's exactly exactly it. Well, that was the steam coming out of the ears. Watch, I think slightly more on the sane side. David's article: IWC Portofino complete calendar. 
David, because this watch isn't necessarily easily understood either. <laughs> it's got yeah. it's got some oddities to it. Explain this IWC, David. It's a brand new uh, IWC Portofino with what's called a complete calendar, and the complete calendar is just it just refers to the number of indications the watch has. It doesn't it doesn't have anything to do with it being an annual calendar or a perpetual calendar or anything like that. So you still have to adjust this watch at the end of every month that is not 31 uh, days long it looks very complicated in some ways and and beautifully balanced in another iwc gets these right a lot of the time in that they can cram a lot of functions and other stuff into watches and make them look very elegant i'm thinking of the da vinci i, I genuinely love that the freaking the perpetual calendar da vinci for example but this is also cool but at the same time just judging from these images you already know that it's terribly illegible uh, on a day-to-day because it has a pointer date and each marker is a fraction of a millimeter in size so unless you have really excellent near near sight um, then you would not be able to read this accurately uh, so what you're wearing is a is a largely illegible but very complicated looking watch and that sort of has this 90s vibe to it i just i just wish it had fewer indications and was more legible and to iwc's credit they make some of those things as well but what's, what this watch is telling me is that this is not a hardcore watch lovers IWC. There are other watches, you know, that the brand makes that has, you know, diehard watch fans flock to them. This is more like somebody enters the boutique, has a bit more to spend, wants something that looks more Swiss watch-like and more complicated and more expensive. And for them, this is perfect. I think that's that's uh, the uh, the uh, audience this is aimed, aimed this at. It's supposed to be one of those... You know, like I think David hit it on uh, on the head there. This is for someone who's really not familiar with luxury watches, maybe grew up with very simple stuff like Daniel Wellington's, and IWC is trying to produce something for them. So it's like going to its like its list of watches. Like, okay, if we had to take one of our things and make something that we feel would appeal to someone that grew up on these simple faces, what would it yeah. be? And they take the Portofino and they're like, oh, let's make it interesting with this. We can charge a bunch of money for it. So it's kind of a committee watch and I get it. IWC probably doesn't know any more than we do if it'll be successful. So if it brings in new people to luxury watches, great. So yes, I agree. It's it's totally not made for any of us. But if it does bring that person who before this spent $120 on a really silly thin quartz watch that just wasn't very fun and they're going up to this, I guess that's good for us. Yeah, exactly. I agree. On the one hand, I like it. On the other hand, I can't unsee the Daniel Wellington aspect of the really (laughs) thin-looking lack of depth to it. They get bonus points for the fact that the calendar is all shown with pointers. They didn't do anything with windows. They stuck to the knitting in terms of my personal design aesthetic from that point of view. But it's $20,000 for in gold for a calendar that you have to change and not only do you have to change it you have to change it with pushers when iwc have the technology to do all of this from the crown which would make sense i could absolutely understand a calendar like this that you have to interact with because the chances are if you're this is not your only watch so unless you're going to put on a watch winder even if it's a perpetual calendar you're going to have to alter it every time you put it on but Doing it via pushers when IWC are well known via the Da Vinci line on the perpetual side for being able to do it all via the crown for 20 grand just strikes me as odd when you could differentiate this watch by saying, yeah, it's not a perpetual calendar. 
you have to interact with it. But you only have to interact with the crown. You don't have to go and find a toothpick from somewhere in order to use mm -hmm. the pushers. Yeah, I'm not a fan of these pushers on any watch, and it's true that IWC does have this technology, but I think they engineered it into a completely different architecture for movement. Mm. This, to me, looks like a base uh, IWC caliber with uh, about three days, 70 hours or so of power reserve and uh, with a module on top. It's not an integrated design like some of those perpetuals are from the 80s onwards. But I agree with you, it, it could be done more elegantly for sure. But at the same time, again, this is this is for someone who goes into the boutique and, and finds this and just likes it and just yeah. buys it and then rolls with it. Yeah, it's a lovely watch. It will be interesting to see how long we see it in the catalogue, how long we see it in the store. But I think it does as you say, Aaron and David appeal to a particular person who has now got the money, but previously was just used to wearing quite simple, straightforward watches. So we will see where that takes them. Okay, Shinola. This was actually a sponsored post this week, but we decided to cover it because it's celebrating something quite important, which is the 10th anniversary of watches built in Detroit. Ariel, you're the expert on Shinola. These days, where have Shinola come from and got to in their first 10 years of watchmaking in Detroit? That's a big question, and I tried to answer that a little bit. We did this project with them, and we helped tell an amazing story about how far they've come. I think the most important thing is to say Shinola isn't just 10, <clears throat> but it's grown a lot. And they've done what they set out to do, and they set out, and they're, and they're doing it better now. They're building more. The watches are really, really good. They've got a great team, and they're fun to. They're really <clears throat> fun to interact with. You got the Shinola Spaces, which are their stores. They have a hotel now, and there's going to be more of them that they've announced. Uh, they sell this large assortment of goods. Some of them are just <clears throat> weird and fun. I think there was like a toboggan they made record player that is like now collectible. They just do all this crazy stuff and they try to make it um, the type of thing where it's designed in America as much as possible is built in America. The design ethos is classic America, kind of mid-century modern, but a little bit more motor city, like kind of bulky stuff made to last a little shiny, maybe a little bit bigger than it needs to be, but looks like it's sort of like quality, just like as, as they would say it, like nice stuff made to last. And the watches, they are handsome. You know, they're not for everyone, but no watch is. I happen to like them a lot. And there's a lot more mechanical watches now where they started having no mechanical watches. Now, a good amount of the collection is mechanical. and There's only going to be more. They are definitely making watches for watch lovers. And you have to say, you know, who's going to be the next Tiffany & Company? Tiffany & Company was the sort of last great American luxury firm that sort of had designs that were really inspired by American things. And then the French you know, purchased it, LVMH acquired it, um, and is, is in the midst of sort of rechanging it. But uh, it will be American-inspired, but it's no longer an American company. Shinola is and is doing not all the same things as Tiffany & Company, but I, I do think they're going to be going more high-end. I do think the jewelry is going to become a bigger part of what they do. So the similarities to Tiffany & Company are actually not um, entirely off in terms of what they're trying to become. And I think that America is at a point where there is a rich amount of nostalgia and history to pull from so that you could start to have the luxury brands that Europe has. I mean, there's a lot of brands in Europe who basically market in, in European history. They, they make beautiful and romantic all these vestiges of the history, the rich history in Europe, um, and they turn them into products and lifestyle. 
And uh, I think that's the type of thing that could probably start to happen in the United States over the next few decades. Um, and Shinola is probably just one of many flavors. So we talk about how they, during the assembly in Detroit, how they make the straps there, how they've added a lot of capabilities. Um, we visited there. So it, it's a great look at what they're doing. And over the next few months, uh, we'll be bringing more stories from Shinola because I would really like the audience uh, to get to know them and have Shinola get to know the audience. Yeah, an interesting question. Should Shinola be a brand that should be stepping up onto the Watches and Wonders stage? Probably, but it would be very awkward because the Europeans would feel strange about it. Anytime there's something new, they're going to feel a little bit standoffish. Um, I think it'd ultimately be a good thing. Uh, but I, I, I really feel that Watches and Wonders and such is primarily a European show. Yes, Grand Seiko is there. And I think Grand Seiko really, really wants to be there. Uh, mm. You'll notice that the other Japanese brands have not returned, do not have a trade show yet, kind of informally show at times, you know, in, in, in Las Vegas at like Couture. But it is really a European show, I think, for the most part, uh, when it comes to the people that show there. And that's fine. But I think that America probably needs to start having its own type of thing like that. There is a there's a burgeoning industry, these little micro brands and things like that. There's bigger ones. Fossil, Movado, which, yes, still exists. Timex. <laughs> um, there are some huge companies that make watches in America. So um, it might be about time to do something like that. I don't know how cooperative these companies would be with one another, but again, I do think the volume is there to have a show like that in the United States. Okay, cookie. Right. Well, that is us coming to a close this week. Yeah, as things continue, uh, we head into Watch and Wonders territory. There'll be a lot more coming from these brands. We're already starting to see the stuff drop into our inboxes. I think. Having discussed a few weeks ago, is it going to be, is 2023 going to be better than 2022? I think I'm now leaning to the fact that 2023 releases could be a somewhat of a classic. I think there's some very big stuff on its way. So do keep checking out our blog to watch content on the website and on all the podcasts. In particular this week, we also have a podcast that Ariel has done with Karel from Barrowhand, a particularly interesting company and a particularly fascinating story. So if you're not subscribing to Superlative, then go to your iTunes or your Spotify and log into it and look up Superlative as a podcast and subscribe and listen there for more A Blog to Watch content. David, what's coming up this week and where can we find you on the internet? We're working on a huge article on something cool. The larger team is involved and I look forward to everyone discovering that. That's all I'm going to say so for now. So big stuff and it's cool. I can, I can attest that that is true, but it's not much of a tease. But there we go. <laughs> Ariel, yourself? I will be in London next week um, visiting with IWC. And mm. uh, I wonder where we'll record this show. Maybe you'll be there yes. too. Maybe. Um, we're going to start to see some of the new watches from 2023. And uh, then <laughs> in March, there's going to be more travel. And then after more travel, nearly two weeks in Switzerland at Watches and Wonders. Um, Watchpocalypse now, as we like to call it. 
Yep. <laughs> and uh, there's just going to be a lot going on. You can see my work at blogtowatch.com. Um, in addition to this podcast, you can hear me on the Superlative Podcast and on Instagram, I'm Ariel to watch. Good stuff. And you can find me at, at Rick TikTok and Instagram. And if you were one of the number last week who asked for special early access to our Discord channel, then well done for making it that far. If you would like early access to our Discord channel, then reach out to me at RickTikTok on Instagram and I will send you the link and you can come and try and break it for us before we officially release it. So that's it from us. Have a great rest of week. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye,